Imagine yourself in a public green space within a city. You're strolling down a path lined with trees and bushes and stop briefly to pick and eat an apple from a tree. A few feet away, someone is cutting a sprig of the herb rosemary from a bush. Farther down the path, you see a child giggling happily while enjoying a freshly picked juicy peach. Welcome to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. What is this place where the food is free for the taking? It's a food forest. A food forest is an area planted with edible and medicinal plants generally located in an urban area. Food forests have multiple positive effects on the environment. Food forest projects aim to serve the surrounding community by demonstrating how to grow and harvest fruit, nuts, herbs, and other edible plants. And anyone can harvest what is produced in the food forest without having to pay. So uh, everything in the food forest is free. At least at the, at the uh, Festival East Food Forest, yeah, it, it is all for free. That's me talking with Umer Kaku of the Festival Beach Food Forest in Austin, Texas. Here's more from Umer. Uh, the Festival Beach Food Forest is located in Austin, Texas, uh, which you know has been you know one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. And it's located pretty close to downtown. It's uh, at the intersection of uh, pretty much Waller and I-35, which is a major highway. Uh, and then also it's quite close to Ladybird Lake, which is, uh, you know, pretty much like an old landfill that was filled in with water. Uh, the neighborhood itself is, is, is quite interesting. So I-35 has historically been used as sort of a dividing line between, you know, East and West Austin. And East Austin, where we are at, is uh, a predominantly uh, African-American and Hispanic uh, and other communities mixed in as well, but it, it's definitely, you know, more uh, people of color uh, is, is generally poorer than the West Side. So that's kind of the uh, neighborhood that we're in. And uh, there used to be a power plant there, too. And the food force kind of came about uh, as the de uh, decommissioning of that power plant came to the end of it. So the food forest is essentially a, a public park without any fencing where we have planted edible you know, fruits, trees, herbs, uh, nuts, things like that. Uh, and we have volunteer events. We have educational events where people come out to learn more. In this program, we'll be hearing from Umer and from Nathan Hunter of the Bronx River Foodway, which is a food forest in the Bronx, New York. Umer and Nathan are dedicated to their respective food forests and to the mission of making fresh fruit, nuts, and herbs freely available to the community. So the Bronx River Foodway is located in the South Bronx um, in a historically marginalized community um, that has seen through decades um, redlining, um, the development of the waterfront, um, industrialization of the borough, um, which has really left the community um, in a situation of food apartheid. Um, the Bronx River Foodway, like Festival Beach Food Forest, is an edible food forest. Um, and it also does not have fences around the property. And so uh, folks can engage with the space at any time of the day. Um, this idea of building a community food asset in a space that has hist historical um, evidence of, of, a of consistently being a building a community that's marginalized. Um, is, is, is important for the sole reason of, of easy access um, 
and removing those barriers. And what was the land used for before it became a food forest? The project is 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 really sitting on on that foundation of an old um, factory. Um, the soil has been remediated, and the park itself is actually, um, or the foodway itself is actually in a giant raised bed. So it's growing in a clean clean soil bank, um, but it's it does come from a formerly industrial past. So uh, your two groups, the Bronx River Foodway and the Festival Beach Food Forest, somehow got connected. Can you talk about uh, how that happened? Both of our projects met actually during a summer series held by the Salazar Center from Colorado. We were both participants in this thing called the Thriving Cities Challenge. And as part of that, they were doing a summer series to kind of build um, skills within all of the teams, kind of educate us about different sorts of topics related to conservation and uh, projects like ours. That's where I met Nathan and we realized our projects had a lot in common. Uh, we not, you know, we had a lot to learn from each other. So we wanted to do some more collaborative work, even though we were competitors as part of this competition. And Nathan, were you involved in that connection right at the start? No, I was uh, lucky to meet Umer and be involved in this process. Um, and so, yeah, slowly we've been kind of uh, meeting each other's communities in various ways, which has been really um, grounding as we both, um, as Umer mentioned, both our sites are very similar and um, we, you know, deal with a lot of the same barriers and concerns. And so it's, it's great to just make connection with others, um, other folks, of other like-minded folks who are building um, similar food resiliency hubs or community assets um, for their neighborhoods. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Umer Kaku of the Festival Beach Food Forest and Nathan Hunter of the Bronx River Foodway. So uh, you guys got connected, your organizations, and then you were both part of the Thriving Cities Challenge. Tell us what that is. So the Thriving Cities Challenge is a, a program of the Salazar Center for Conservation. And the, the big ethos of this challenge is that as our cities are facing the effects of climate change and, you know, they're confronting policies that often leave our communities of color more vulnerable in the heat, rising seas and the extreme weather you know, climate change brings, um, they think there is hope in nature-based solutions to not only make these communities more resilient to these changes, but then also offer, you know, additional benefits and improve the collective health of our cities and our residents. So that's the ethos of the Thriving Cities Challenge. Um, and this this year, they actually picked uh, five winners. Uh, previously, they'd only picked one, so they were actually able to raise quite a bit more money to give out to different projects. And all the projects were amazing. I think there were 15 teams that were finalists. And uh, yeah, so so we were, we were both uh, winners uh, as part of that competition. The Bronx River Foodway Project was led by Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice, along with a coalition of other groups in the Bronx. Nathan Hunter picks up. We are the only edible food forest on public land in New York City, and that's um, significant. And while this is the pilot project for, um, for our city, um, you know, we are learning a lot, and this is a case study that allows us to understand the barriers and the challenges as much as the successes and opportunities um, and allow us to kind of um, go from there as we build a policy or acknowledge the policies that exist and consider um, how new policies could exist um, to support these community activations of public spaces, very similar to the Foodway. So uh, both of your organizations are concerned with a movement called food sovereignty. 
Can you, could you explain that term? Um, so food sovereignty, you know, is, is the opposite of food um, insecurity, you know, for, for me, it, it really comes down to or boils down to food sovereignty empowers communities and individuals to define and control the food systems um, through production, distribution, consumption, you know, every piece of the food system, you know, community members are actually holding onto it and engage in controlling it. Um, that's what true f- food sovereignty looks like. I think, um, you know, my space and I think Umer's space may be similar, but the idea of food apartheid, um, food exists in our neighborhood. We're about a mile and a half away from the largest food distribution hub in all of the country, the Hans Point food distribution market. And uh, there's no reason that our community shouldn't have access to fresh produce. So that understanding of the system is why we use the term food apartheid rather than let's say food desert because there's there's food here it's not a desert there's food here it's just the fact that access is the issue and just to add to that uh in austin where the you know festival beach food forest is we have the rebecca baines johnson uh center pretty much next to it and there they have you know 300 low-income seniors who live there and that neighborhood and uh, just that building food insecurity is at about 43 percent which is r- incredibly high compared to say the the US average is like 15%, right? So 43% of people don't have access to to you know fresh produce and and healthy food in that area. So we're really trying to uh, sort of use our projects to empower these communities to to you know take control of their own food supply chains. If I could just add on to that, I would say it's not only just receiving food, right? Like raw vegetables and fruit or herbs or whatever you see as food, but um, it's the educational component, right? Like once you receive the food, how do you store it, right? Like how do you keep it for long term? How do you process it, right? In order to make dinners and food um, and how do you consume it safely, right? I think those are all different aspects of um, that because of historical um uh, legacies of, of, of disinvestment and in, in, in specifically black and brown communities, um, you know, there's a gap in knowledge of how to, to really achieve food security or food sovereignty. Can you talk specifically about some things that you do in the Bronx River Foodway to address education or just the availability of the uh, food forest? How do you get people to come out and pick the food? Yeah, you know, it's exciting to have different ways, uh, like, entry points for folks um, to engage with this work, right? I think so much of it for me is, is acknowledging the unfamiliar as much as the familiar. So people will come in to the Bronx River Foodway and they might find blueberries, which feel very familiar, right? Or raspberries, but they might not know what wild plantain is or um, they might not know what cleaver is. And those are really medicinal herbs. And so how, how do we um, demystify and also like normalize the idea of eating wild foods. And so that's been a really great touch point. And we've been doing, um, you know, just herbal walks and, you know, having elders that look like you or having leaders that look like you eating the foods helps demystify and and make things um, accessible. Um, I think that's a component um, that is is often overlooked. Um, But then I think, you know, quite literally cooking together, right? Eating together. Those are ways that solidify a lot of those relationships to food. Are those things that happen in the foodway? 
Yeah, so through community collaborations, we have cooking demos and we have foodway tours. Um, we have we uplift a lot of local community uh, foragers and herbalists, um, and we you know financially support them so that they can lead these experiences. You know, um, and so each season we usually highlight our first Saturday, um, first Saturdays at the foodway um, to come out and just spend the day with us and engage with the space on various levels. And you get a good response from the local community? Uh, are people coming from just uh, in, in the Bronx neighborhood, or are you getting people from Brooklyn, other places in New York, around the city? So we definitely um, are focused on our hyper-local stakeholders, um, folks that live in the on the block, right? Um, but we do see a, a large interest and a demand from this across the city. Um, so we do we see a lot of folks coming from Queens and from um, Brooklyn and spaces where they don't have access to food, um, food forests like this and public parks. Um, I, I think, um, you know, this project is new. It's only been around for about four years. Um, and so there's a lot of just um, acknowledging that this resource exists. So uh, lots more to be done. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Nathan Hunter of the Bronx River Foodway and Umer Kaku of the Festival Beach Food Forest. So, Umer, who are the people that come to the Festival Beach Food Forest? Are they the neighbors around the area? Are they people from elsewhere around the city? vast majority of the people who come into the food forest to either pick produce or volunteer are in the neighborhood. Um, a, a lot of them actually have uh, plots at the community garden next door as well. And, but we also get people from all over Austin, you know, students from the, both the universities, uh, St. Ed's and University of Texas at Austin. And then we also get uh, other, you know, young people who've just moved to Austin are looking for volunteer events. Uh, and, you know, they come check it out. So we have some bigger volunteer days where we have a larger turnout from across the city. But vast majority of the regular volunteers and the people who regularly come in and pick fruit and, uh, you know, herbs, things like that, they're pretty local. So we, we are much like the Bronx River Foodway, very hyper-focused on our community. The food forest obviously promotes benefits to people in the community, but it also benefits nature and the environment. And I understand that process is called ecosystem services, which sounds a bit industrial, but I'm sure it's not. So uh, could you explain what is meant by ecosystem services, Umer? Ecosystem services are basically all of the benefits to humans that our natural environment provides, right? So you think about things things like clean air, clean water, uh, even pollinators for pollinating food, right? Because without those things, we wouldn't have a lot of the fruits that we, we eat uh, and nuts as well, right? So those are all the ecosystem services that are done by nature. And by having and conserving biodiversity in projects like the Festival Beach Food Forest and the Bronx River Foodway, we build stronger ecosystems, which will activate these benefits and protect us and allow us to lead a healthy life. And Nathan, could you address that? Yeah, I mean, I think Umer said it really beautifully, but I think, um, you know, a lot of, you mentioned almost before how it seems industrial, and I think this language feels industrial because it's it, we're using it within a capitalist framework, but um, the idea that, like, we walk around our neighborhood all the time and we don't even acknowledge that we're breathing in clean air because of these trees, right? Like, I think that's the most, like, tangible experience um, with ecosystem services are all these just, like, general benefits that we don't even... We don't even thank, you know, this earth for, but we receive on a regular basis. Um, 
And so the more we can tap into the or acknowledge and tap into these um, services and support them, um, the better off we really are when it comes to surviving as a species on this planet, especially as we uh, face climate crisis and um, we, we start to navigate adaptation. But um, I think, you know, no one no one will refute the idea that it is cooler underneath a canopy of a tree than it is uh, without the canopy of a tree. Um, and so, uh, you know, trees are a great place to start if you're new to this term and and kind of navigating how to how to maybe play a role and building ecosystem services or supporting ecosystem services. Um, think about just trees and what they provide and let's just support with our, support our trees. Right. That's a great way to start. I guess the other part, which I think Umer touched on, was having plants to attract pollinators and other wildlife. Is that correct? Yeah, without without bees, without pollinators, without even mammals that pollinate, we would not have the food that we all talk about um, and, and our community celebrate and brings us together and keep us healthy, right? You know, like what medicinal plants can we find at the food forests um, at either of our sites that actually got us through maybe 2020 and COVID, right? You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Nathan Hunter of the Bronx River Foodway and Umer Kaku of the Festival Beach Food Forest in Austin, Texas. And I understand that part of what you, uh, both of your organizations are doing is gathering data on what you're doing, and how it's benefiting both the environment and the community. Can you talk about that, and how do you go about doing that? At least at the the Festival Beach Food Forest, uh, we've been really focused on collecting uh, d- data on biodiversity. I, that has been a personal project of mine. Uh, I use iNaturalist to to collect data on a lot of the pollinators that we we see here, but then also uh, random weeds and, and native plants that pop up, which I I, I really enjoy studying. Um, but the University of Texas at Austin, they actually did a survey recently of the food forest and the community garden, and they found that we we actually are having habitat for 25 different bee species, which is really, really cool, right? Because we have honeybees, uh, but then we have all these other native bees, like green ones, blue ones, striped ones that we find, and they're all being supported by our native flowers. And they in turn support, you know, pollinate a lot of the the crops that we have. And then I've also noticed, uh, you know, I think three or four different species of like bigger butterflies, right? Like monarchs, swallowtails, things like that. So really trying to categorize what is going on there. Um, Another thing we've been trying to measure is uh, the girth of a lot of our trees, uh, you know, as time progresses, because we want to measure how much uh, carbon they're storing within their trunks as these trees grow, because the food forest has really kind of accelerated how uh, dense it has gotten over the past couple of years. So we want to make sure we, we capture how much carbon the food force is capturing. A lot of what Omer just mentioned are things that we are um, focusing on here, everything from pollinators, um, counting how many pollinators are present and the varieties um, during migration and other times of the year, seeing when the first first signs of them are, right? A healthy pollinator corridor directly benefits all food production and supports natural biodiversity. Um, but uh, at the food way, some other things that we're focusing on is, um, is thinking about our soils. Um, how can soil capture carbon? So we're working with a a group that's part artist, part science, <laughs> uh, scientists, uh, a collective called Carbon Sponge that focuses on studying and beginning to track 
regular soil metrics just to build long-term prof- a long-term profile um, of our urban soils at the foodway and really understanding how does the how do these soils really hold carbon um, and so basic metrics that we've been taking include you know your pH level soil temperature um, water like how moist the soil is um, we've been using a re- refractometer to actually press the leaves um, and receive sap from plants um, through which we can use the device, the refractometer, to actually um, understand the sugar levels in, in, in plants, um, plants' leaves. Um, by understanding the sugar level in the plant, we can understand how healthy or how happy that plant is. And we can actually um, check to see if it's, if, if, it's, if it's kind of, there's a range, if, it, if it's at its opti- optimal growing um, pattern. And by understanding that, um, we can tell if the soil is healthy, right? Because healthy soil makes healthy plants. Our location is still an industrial corridor. We're surrounded by highways. And so we've been using um, an XRF machine to just scan the soil and understand um, if there's legacy leads, uh, legacy metals um, that are found in the soil, things like lead, um, arsenic. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of soil sampling um, to test quality of soil because um, living in an urban setting, the, a lot of the fears um, community members have in engaging with this work is directly around um, the, the histories around polluted land and polluted soil and the histories around brown and black bodies being vulnerable to those conditions because they are often um, facing um, racist systems like redlining and other things that place them in those locations. Talking about soil, how do you improve the soil? What are give me an idea of what things you do to make sure the soil in the food forest is good? That's, that's a continuous work, continuously learning, right? Um, but we, you know, we think a lot about native plants and their benefits, and we allow oftentimes, um, you know, the ground to lay covered. I think that's a big piece: is just making sure that the soil is covered so that the life in the soil does not die. Um, very similar to our skin, when we have an open wound, we create a scab, and nature nature creates a scab by putting weeds um, and by pre- creating underbrush. Um, often, humans want to clear those things, but that's actually what protects the earth. Um, so we la- allow a lot of that to go, and we try to study and understand those plants and, and learn how they're actually food or medicine in many cases. Um, so that's one thing we do, cover crops or interplanting with species that we know will fix good things into the ground. Um, uh, things like rye, clover. Um, I try to focus on native plants that <laughs> don't require a lot of labor. Um, and then mulching, right? Returning uh, wood chips or returning carbon back to the earth in that form um, protects it and also feeds the soil. And then uh, Umer, can you talk to that as well? Improving soil is a continuous process. We've recently, for the past uh, two years, been been trying cover crops for improving the soil as well, right? Um, some of those cover crops are food, uh, but we, we don't harvest all the cover crops. Some of it we let, you know, die back and decompose back into the soil. Um, and then another thing we started doing last year during COVID was uh, there's a really cool organization in, in Austin called Central Texas Mycology, they have been uh, they've been giving out uh, mushroom blocks. So basically, whenever you grow mushrooms, uh, you, they they end up growing in these 
block shapes because they grow them in plastic bags. And those that mushroom mycelium is still alive even after you harvest the mushrooms. And so they would give us, you know, 10, 20 pounds of these mushroom blocks. And what we would do is we would rip open the plastic, you know, trash the plastic, and then the mycelium, we would crush it up and then disperse all throughout the food forest into the mulch and and, and allow those mushrooms uh, to kind of inoculate the soil and break it down and improve it, right? We, we know that a lot of mushrooms have uh, relationships with different trees. So we've, go, we've actually harvested, um, I think in the spring or uh, early summer, we actually had a huge harvest of oyster mushrooms, many different kinds that had come up from last summer's uh, mycelium planting. So we're really trying to improve the soil using some of these different methods. Food forests are wonderful expressions of love for nature, for the environment, for wildlife like birds and small furry creatures, and for the humans who are lucky enough to live near them. There's much more to this story, but for now, our time is up. We'll continue with Umer Kaku of the Festival Beach Food Forest in Austin, Texas, and Nathan Hunter of the Bronx River Foodway in our next program, where we'll talk about other benefits of food forests, including how they can foster plant and wildlife diversity, and how the data being gathered at these two food forests can benefit others who may be inspired to establish similar green spaces. Please tell people you know about this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. Music